Turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. As you're turning there, we're going to show a little video. And uh, this is kind of my way of saying, I really don't want to go into great detail about all the little measurements and stuff that we're going to see uh, in the next few chapters. But what we're going to see here today is just a 3D animation, uh, which I found actually on YouTube. And, and I saw it. I said, you know, we've got to see this. It'll help me and it'll help you. <laughs> kind of see the, uh, the, the dimensions of the, the uh, temple of Ezekiel. In other words, the temple that Ezekiel saw in, in the vision. And we said, it, of course, I passed out these uh, sheets last week with, with some dimensions on it. Also, the, the size difference between the uh, the Messianic temple, which is this temple here, the Messianic temple is the temple that Jesus is going to build uh, when he comes again, uh, in comparison to Solomon's, Herod's, and, and, uh, and the tabernacle. Just immense. It is an immense uh, structure. So look at, take note of the dimensions that they're going to bring up. And in the corner, top left corner, you'll see the, uh, uh, the, the scripture references. Some of them will be for tonight as well. Uh, you might want to see the sides are a little clearer than the one in the middle, but you can look at the one in the middle if the lights are off. Okay.
I know that was just an artist's rendering, but uh, I thought it, it would give us some kind of a, a little concept of, of the, uh, of the um, uh, area of, of what we call Ezekiel's temple, but this is a messianic uh, a temple. And uh, besides, I, I really like that little Israeli groove. Uh, you know, it was kind of cool. But uh, some of the dimensions were just a little bit off, mainly because of the, of the, the conception of the, of the cubit, as we talked about last week, you know, the length of the cubit and, and the long cubit, uh, including the hand breadth. So the hand breadth was only 2.9, it says 2.9 inches. But uh, that's if you measure from here to this way. But if you go the other way, it's a little longer. That's why we said two and a half feet, or 10 and a half feet is the, is the long cubit. So, or the long reed, I should say, which was made up of 10 uh, cubits, right? So uh, we'll get it. We'll go back and we'll see it. It's in our text. All right, so we, what we need to do then is, is uh, continue on, but um, there, there was one more thing that I wanted to add to our study this evening, and that was the understanding of the importance of, of, the, of the temples that have uh, been given to us in the scriptures. So uh, it's going to do us well then to review a little bit where we've been in our study of the book of, uh, in our studies of the book of Ezekiel. So in a very simple outline form, if you're writing notes, just, you know, this is very simple. If you haven't been with us from the very beginning, uh, this is what we've studied so far. Uh, in a very simple outline, the, the prophet Ezekiel received God's call, and we saw that in the first three chapters of the book. So the first three chapters deals with Ezekiel's call to the ministry of, of, uh, of pro prophesying to the, the people that were in captivity uh, the things that God wanted them to understand as to why they were there uh, and also how he was going to restore them eventually. But his call is in the first three chapters, uh, chapters 4 through 24 deal with the condemnation and the judgment of Jerusalem for their rebellion and disobedience of God. So that whole section from 4 to 24 deals with that, with uh, condemnation and judgment. So it talks about the reason why they're in captivity. Uh, chapters 25 through 32 outline the consequences that would come upon the enemies of Israel. So the Lord wasn't just saying, you know, I'm, I'm just going to beat up on my people and that's it. No, uh, there was a very good reason why uh, they were uh, being judged, but at the same time, God was not going to let off anyone who was coming against them. So there are going to be consequences upon the enemies of Israel. And while chapters 33 through 48 present the climactic goal of God's prophetic plan for Israel, we want to break that uh, passage down a little further so we can understand it this way. So the goal of God's plan begins with the fact that in chapters 33 and 34, he speaks about the return of God's people to the land. So again, that, that's an encouraging thing. The prophet was to give them an encouragement that they were going to go back to the land. The prophet Jeremiah talked about it in Jeremiah 29. Uh, certainly Isaiah talks about the restoration of, of, of the nation of Israel. But here it's chapters 33 and 34. We studied the return of God's people to the land. In chapter 35, we saw the resulting judgment upon Mount Seir, which is actually Edom, the land of Edom, the Edomites, the people that were the descendants of Esau. 
They were haters of Israel. Uh, They had bitter hatred toward Israel. God was going to judge them for that. And then in chapter 36, God talks about the renewing of the land. Now, when I say God does, you know, a lot of people say, well, Ezekiel said this and that. Ezekiel only said what God told him to say. (laughs) So Ezekiel is, is, is just repeating what God says to him. Thus saith the Lord, he said. So he talks about the renewing of the land of Israel, of taking a land that was barren and desolate and God turning it into a fruitful land, which by the way, he has already done. And then in chapter 37, of course, we see the resurrecting and the reunifying of the nation of Israel. The dry bones have risen. What was dead has become alive. You know, the enemy has wanted Israel dead from the very beginning. This is why, uh, this is why we, we saw what happened to, I mean, you can go all the way back to Cain and Abel. And what Cain did to Abel, Abel being the, uh, would have been the, 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 the source, actually, of, of, of the Messiah. Eventually, it would be Seth. But the, the, point, the point being that from the very beginning, the devil has wanted to cut off the seed of the woman, which he was told directly by God in Genesis chapter 3 was going to come because of the sin that he caused upon the land and upon the people. So Israel was going to resurrect. And then uh, that's chapter 37. Then in chapters 38 and 39, of course, we call those the, uh, the Gog and Magog war chapters, but we want to call it the revealing of God's protective power over Israel the revealing or the revelation of God's protective power over Israel. These nations are gathered together against Israel. They're going to come against Israel. God is going to destroy those nations that come against his people. And then lastly, the restoration of worship in in Messiah's temple, which is what chapters 40 through 48 are all about. So that's pretty much a rundown of where we've been and where we're going. But one of our main objectives in the study of this last portion of the prophecy of Ezekiel is to prove that the building of the temple is not allegorical. The building of the temple is not symbolic only of the church. It's it's not symbolic of the church at all in this particular case. A lot of people are are saying this is all allegory. It's actually talking about the fact that the church is now Israel and actually the temple is the church. We're going to talk about that later. But for now, this is not what this temple is all about. In fact, this is a literal account. And we talked about that last week because we went all the way back to chapter 1 where we saw dates given to the visions that Ezekiel received of God. And the visions that we saw at the beginning of chapter 40 It says we we are given the dates and the times, if you will, that the hand of the Lord came upon the, uh, the prophet and in the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel. So all of these are significant because they're telling us that God, by the the very use of dates here, telling us when these things are happening, are pointing to something that is yet to come. So the use of time as far as date setting here goes It is to show us and to prove us that the building of the temple is not symbolic. It is not an allegory. It is, in fact, a real temple that's going to be built. 
and it's set for the return of Israel's Messiah to rule and to reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now, who is Israel's Messiah? Jesus. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the one who is going to come to rule and to reign in Jerusalem. Now the Jews believe that the Messiah is coming, but they don't believe it's Jesus. One day they will believe it's Jesus because they will see him when he comes and they'll see the nail prints in his hands or in his wrists. They'll see the nail prints and they'll weep because they'll know that they indeed missed what the scripture said. By the way, that is the Old Testament. The book of Zechariah talks about that. So we focused our attention then on the fact that there are so many words and so many phrases that indicate a place of worship to the Lord. This is what we did last week. We talked about that place of worship because this is what the temple is all about. It is the place where God is to be worshiped. And God has always wanted a place for worship. We've used the term tabernacle, the term temple. We talked about the number of times that these words have been used throughout scripture. I'm not gonna go through that list again. Tabernacle, temple, temple of the Lord, temple of God, holy place, the most holy, the most holy place, the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the mount of the Lord, and the holy mount, which is interesting because the holy mount is used both by the Jews and by the Muslims. Today, the Temple Mount that is in Jerusalem is right now overseen by Arabs, and it's overseen by Islam because of the two structures that are on the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock uh, Memorial. It's not really a mosque. That's the gold dome that you oftentimes see in pictures. They will call it the Holy Mount. The other word that we used and have used and will use tonight is the word sanctuary. Sanctuary. Remember I said last week that sanctuary is, is you know, we have misused the word sanctuary in our day and time. Sanctuary is a place, you know, where, you know, as, as, as it has been said, you know, a lot of people say this is where the illegal aliens can go and, 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 and be safe, you know. But, but that's, that's not what sanctuary means. It has the root of being holy, a holy place. A sanctuary is a holy place. We call this room the sanctuary. Why? Because we gather in it to worship our God. And it should be holy. Just as we should be holy when we come in to worship the Lord. The sad thing is that many in the church today are seemingly following the lead of the Islamic world in denying, listen carefully, in denying the presence of a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount or the Holy Mount, as, it, as it's called by both the Jews and the, and the, and the, and the uh, is, uh, Muslim. But there are people in the church today that are moving in the direction of, of being uh, sympathetic toward the quote-unquote Palestinian cause. But nobody can ever say that they're a, Palest they're a true Palestinian because nobody knows what a Palestinian is. It was a made-up word for a made-up people. Yes, they are Arabs, and they are living in the land today. But the fact of the matter is, 
the people that are, are running the, you know, the, you know the, the, the propaganda campaigns. They continue to say that Israel is the aggressor, Israel is the oppressor, Israel is the ones that are uh, causing all the problems in the Middle East. When time and time again we have seen that Israel is, is, is the nation that is helping people if they need help, but if they get attacked, what are they going to do? They retaliate. So those who are, who are siding with, with, with them because they, they don't want to side with Israel also are, also are defining their eschatological positions. That's a fancy word for their end time positions. They are labeling their end time position. And their end time position is not biblical at all. They, they don't go in the direction of, of the Bible. They don't, they don't believe that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the end time is going to happen the way the Bible says. They believe something else. And we've talked a little bit about those things, and we're not going to spend any more time with that. But they will deny the presence of a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, but even the need for a, Mess for a Messianic temple in the millennium. Because the, here again, they're defining their, their, their end time position by saying, oh no, it's just allegorical. It's just symbolic. The, the, the Messianic temple is just symbolic of the church. Well, that is simply because this passage is one of the most neglected in all of Scripture. They don't get it, they don't understand it, and therefore it's easier to consider it allegory. That's the bottom line. But the evidence makes it clear. The biblical evidence, the historical evidence, and the present current evidence that is being found day by day in, in the land of Israel makes it clear that they are all wrong. Rare, take, take this, for example. Rare coins were found recently in the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found back, back in the 40s. And on, on, there were nine rare silver coins found, which were all dated back to the time of the Jewish revolt in the second century AD. And uh, there was an impression of the temple on the coin. See, the Islamic world denies that, the, that there was ever a, te a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. They deny it. Just as much as most of them deny the fact that there was ever a Holocaust. How many of you have seen pictures of the Holocaust? People in the Holocaust. We've all seen them. So how, how do you deny that? How do you make that up? It's kind of like, you know, those, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, those uh, conspiracy theorists, you know, that say that... Uh, that we never got to the moon. It was all, it was all Hollywood, you know, that got us on the moon, you know. We, we've never been to the moon, that kind of thing. Well, that's what they say about the Holocaust, you know. Well, it was all made up. Really? But I've met, I've met people that were in the Holocaust. I, I've seen the tattoo on their arm with the number the, and, and, and the Star of David. Seen it. Talked to them. Many of them are no longer here. There are some that are still because they were very young when they were in, in the Holocaust. But they were there. But most of the Islamic world have been told, no, it never happened. So these coins were found. And when they deny the fact that there was a temple, there was a temple because they had made an impression of the Temple of Solomon. Because that was, I'm sorry, the Temple of Herod, because that was the one that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. 
But you see, God, all, God has always had a place of worship because this is what it's all about. God has always had a place of worship. And there are too many passages to deny the temples that the Lord is required to be built. And while many Jewish and Christian scholars refer to only three temples, and a lot of times this is all they refer to, they refer to three temples, that one of Solomon, uh, the one by Herod, uh, the one built by Herod, and also the Messiah, uh, the Messiah's temple, which is Ezekiel's temple. But the words throughout scripture refer, uh, referring to the temple are, are actually used to describe six temples. Six temples. One of them, of course, is the tabernacle, and that's what we're going to start with first today. The first temple was actually the tabernacle of Moses. It was, in fact, the type for the, the, the following temple and the type of the temple uh, that was given by God instructed to uh, Moses as to how to build it, what to build it with, and when to build it, and where to build it, and where to assemble it, and when to assemble it, because that's where he was going to meet with his people. Now, a few years ago, we went to Israel, and we were uh, uh, taken out into the desert where there was a... a, 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 a tabernacle that was constructed by Messianic Jews. And uh, actually, I'll, I'll take that back. There is one now uh, that is done by Messianic Jews. The ones we went to were actually done by some Arabs. But they actually used the, the, the proper uh, dimensions for the tabernacle. And when we got there, we said, this is the size of the tabernacle? It wasn't very big at all. And we, we got to walk through it and to see the veils and the, you know, the uh, the instruments, the uh, utensils that were built, and the, you know, the show, the table of, of bread, and, the, and, and, and all, and everything that was, was told to, to make for this particular tabernacle. And, uh, you know, what, and the room that would house the Ark of the Covenant and all. Uh, it was all just really small, I thought, wow. But see, some people think, why, how can people come in here to worship when you had two million people surrounding the, you know, surrounding the, uh, <laughs> uh, the tabernacle? Well, because God instructed, if you read the scriptures, God instructs the all of the tribes to surround the tabernacle and look toward it, and God's presence would come down. And, you know, there would be a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and it would rest in there, and they would go and worship the Lord. I mean, they were there. That's how you get two million people in that little place. They don't go in. Why? Because that's where God goes. It's God who goes there to meet with his people. The same thing is with the temple. Well, you don't, we don't think about that. Well, the temple is a lot bigger, yeah, but still, you can't get all the, all the, all the Jewish worshipers to come and go into the temple. Who gets to go into the temple? It was instructed that the priests go into the temple. So, you see, we, we have to get out of these, this, this kind of awkward thinking. Anyway, the first temple was the tabernacle of Moses. And we're told in Exodus 15, verses 17 through 18, it says, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So there is reference there of a place that they would worship the Lord. It would be the sanctuary, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. Well, the Lord actually gave to Moses the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 through 40. So from 25 to the very end of the book of Exodus, God gave all the instructions 
uh, about the tabernacle. But in Exodus 25, verse 8, listen to this. It says, and let them make me, this is God speaking, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Let them make me a sanctuary. Speaking to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary. Let them make me a holy place where I may dwell among them. So that, in effect, was the first temple, as it were, the first place of worship for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel. You go back in time to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as people set apart by God for various uh, uh, works that he's going to do because the line of, of the Messiah was going to come through them and all. They all had their places of worship. Many of them were personal places. Remember Jacob out in the wilderness and all. Everybody had their place. But for the nation, God says, build me a tabernacle. For God's people, he says, build me a tabernacle. The second temple was the Temple of Solomon. And the Temple of Solomon, uh, if, if you remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. Solomon's dad Solomon's father, David, wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord would not allow him to build it because he was a man of war, and his hands, of course, were, were, were bloody from, from the battles that he fought. Solomon Sh Sh Shlomo, you know, uh, is from, from peace, so, you know, what a perfect person to be the one assigned to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem or in the city of David, as it were. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we're told about the building of the Temple of Solomon. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. Moriah being, of course, the place where Isaac was taken by Abraham, his father, to be a sacrifice. And we know the story of that. That's Genesis 22. Uh, but it says he went to... Uh, build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So that was actually in the city of David. Now, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about placement of the temple later. Uh, I know some people have been asking me about that, but, uh, you know, we're going to get to it uh, as to is the Temple Mount the, the most valid place for the temple? Is there any other? Well... Keep your questions to yourself until I tell you when, <laughs> what's going to happen there. Uh, still speculate, speculative in some cases. But this particular temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in the time where we are right now in Ezekiel. It's afterwards, of course, that it happened, almost, almost seven years down the road. But uh, this particular temple was destroyed. And, and, and you know, it's interesting that 2 Chronicles 3, it tells us that he began to build. But uh, some 33 chapters later, this is what is recorded. Look at 2 Chronicles. I want you to look at this passage carefully. I was only going to give you the part where it talks about, you know, the, the fact that the temple was, was, was burned and destroyed. But I want to go up earlier than that because I think we need to look at some of the spiritual uh, elements to the reason why Israel was judged the way it was. You go to 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11. And it says, Zedekiah, 
who was the king at that time, was one and 20 years old, in other words, 21 years old, when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Now stop there for a second and think about that. Here's a king that's supposed to be one that is there because he's in the line of, of, uh, of David, as it were, and, and he needs to be there to listen to God, to, 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 do, uh, to fight for his people, to, you know, to, to be the one who rules and reigns. But he's an evil God. I mean, he's an evil uh, king. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did that which was evil. He, his actions were evil. His heart was filled with this evil and wickedness that caused him to do evil things, even as a king of a nation that was set apart by God. But it wasn't just the heart, because look at what, what happens to him. It says, he humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah would speak to Zedekiah, and Zedekiah was just, you know, was, was just not humbled. You know, there's a lot of world leaders today that are the very same way. We've had some of them even be presidents of the United States. They're not humble before God. We have to understand something. Nations will be judged. We've said this many times. Nations will be judged. And when you judge a nation, you always go to the leader first. And you think about the kind of judgment that, that, that is going to come upon many of the leaders today of many nations. And it says, and he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. So he, this guy was not just arrogant toward the prophets of God. He, he was arrogant toward, toward his own enemy. And he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck. What, what does that tell us? He was, he was a backslider. And he, you know, he wouldn't go forward. He, he just, you know, he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. In other words, I'm in trouble. This nation's in trouble, but I'm not going to God. Whew. That, that's, uh, that's pretty strong language there. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people. No, so, no, so now you got the chief of the priests, the people that are in charge of the priests, and the people, the people that follow along. You know, the priests say something, oh, they're going to do it, right? The chief priests and the people transgressed, it says, very much after all the abominations of the heathen. Well, if the priests are doing it, I guess we can do it too. Polluted the house of the Lord. They polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, which means they rise up really early and and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He continued to send warnings and send warnings early, early to the people, warning them to get right with him. But they mocked the messengers of God. They mocked him. People today who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ get, get, get mocked all the time for preaching the love of Christ, for preaching salvation in Jesus despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. What does that tell us about God? How patient God was until he was patient no more. 
And therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, that is the Babylonians, who slew their young men. Listen, this was the kind of the heart, this is the kind of heart that Nebuchadnezzar had. Slew the young men with a sword where? In the house of their sanctuary. In the house of their sanctuary. And had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. It was a slaughter. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. Yeah, the enemy of God, the heathen. God, God was going to judge Babylon in a, in a mighty way for the way that they treated Israel. But Israel was judged because they were wicked as well. They had become wicked. They had turned from God. So it's very sad that what began as a good thing, the, Sol the Temple of Solomon, what began with a good heart. And remember, Solomon himself had, had his times of, of, of getting away from God and, and doing the things that pleased him more than anything else all those wives and concubines that he had, making all kinds of compromises with other nations because of that. And it was just setting up Israel for a tremendous fall. So what began as a good thing ended in a very bad way. So Israel goes into, into captivity, and after the time that was prescribed by God, for his people in captivity came another temple. This is the third temple. That is the rebuilt, restored temple. And, and let me just say that much of that temple was, was just put stone upon stone, whatever they could do. It wasn't a beautiful place, but they had the desire to have a temple because that was what God wanted, was a temple, so this God would meet with his people, have a place of worship. And there were good people that began that project, as we'll see in just a moment. But this temple, this restored, rebuilt temple, was built after Judah's captivity in Babylon, and according to the proclamation, of the protect, uh, the proclamation and protection of the king of Persia, and I should say kings of Persia, not just one king, the first decree actually came from Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Cyrus, an interesting person, because he, he was never, at least we don't know from the scriptures, that he was ever a true believer in, 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 in the God of Israel. More, more than likely, he wasn't. But he was the king that was actually na uh, prophesied by name about 150 years before he even existed, or about 130 years before he even existed in the book of Isaiah. And so here's Cyrus, 
And then later on, a couple of other kings, and then minor kings, and then, and then uh, led up to Darius I. And we'll talk about him in a moment. So this particular temple was, was built according to the proclamation and protection given by the king of Persia, along with the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, which is Jehoshua or Joshua, son of Zodak, uh, Josedek, not the son of Nun, which was Josiah, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Joshua, who was with Moses. That, that was a long time before. This is another Joshua. This is a, uh, his name actually is pronounced Yeshua. Uh, and so it, he's a type of Christ in a sense, as, as with uh, Jer uh, Zerubbabel. But although Cyrus uh, gave the edict for the return of the exiles in 538 BC, that was when 49,897 of them returned unto Zerubbabel and built the foundation for the altar and the temple. It was during the reign of Darius I that the temple was completed, and that was around 518 BC. So if you turn to Ezra chapter 1 now, uh, go to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you were at Second Chronicles before, just go to the next page, and that's, I, I think you'll find Ezra there. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And notice what it says. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So there is a prophecy of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. In, in other words, the Lord God of Israel moved upon the heart of this pagan king Cyrus. <coughs> that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying, thus saith Cyrus king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now that sounds really good coming from Cyrus, but one thing we have to remember, if you look at the history of this particular Persian king, he did the same thing with the gods of the other nations around him because it was all politics. <laughs> but you see, when God was in control for Israel, he moved upon this particular king. You know, the irony of it is, is that it was a Persian king that allowed the building, the building of the temple and the return of the people back to the land. The irony is the fact that there is a... Um, there is a, uh, a, a, a Persian leader today. It's not a king, but Persia, of course, is the, the nation of Iran that just wants to destroy Israel. <laughs> so, you know, so here we have you know, Persia on, on two sides of, of, of the whole picture. If you go down to uh, Ezra chapter 5, though, in verses 1 and 2, notice that it says that the prophets helped in building this particular temple. And then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
and Yeshua, the son of Yozadek, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. And once again, it was a building that was kind of set up with rock upon rock. You know, things were so destroyed and the, as many rocks as they could find to put up and, 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 and uh, uh, put back up in place. Uh, this is how they, they built that particular temple. And I have to tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't a pretty temple. The reason we know that, because most of the people that had seen Solomon's temple, these were the older, older, older people, but most of them that had seen Solomon's temple, man, they said, this is a mess. They would look at this temple, they didn't like it. Now, that's, you know, that's man's opinion. But uh, the people were not excited about rebuilding this temple. In fact, when coming back into the land, most of the people were more concerned with building their own houses. They were back in the land. Hey, we're back in the land. Let's, let's build us a nice place now. We're not even going anywhere now. And uh, what happened? Well, in fact, the prophet Haggai admonished them. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, listen. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, remember that Darius uh, was the king of Persia during the time of the finishing up of the temple. In the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Yahshua, uh, the son of Yosedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the, Lord, speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, Now notice, the people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, which means your paneled houses, Paneled with the finest woods by, uh, wood, by the way. And this house, God's house, lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag of, with holes. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. One of the saddest things that you see happening is that when worship is set aside, when we make ourselves more important than the worship of our God, in many cases, that is financial ruin. And God will make sure of that. Or at least he has, he's going to use that aspect of finance to be uh, something that stirs a person's heart or people's hearts. In other words, you know, when we were giving to the Lord and we were worshiping the Lord, we never lacked. We always had. Folks, this is a biblical principle in the issue of tithing. When we give with all of our heart, when we give from the heart and not so much just, you know, doing the calculations, when we give from the heart, God always blesses. 
But the minute we start considering ourselves only and considering ourselves only and what, you know, what we need and what we want without including the Lord in all of this, man, you know, you're paying your bills, but at the end of the month, man, it's like, whoa, I'm going to have to reshuffle some stuff here, right? And you stop giving to the Lord and this is what begins to happen. That's just a, you know, that's just a small example. It could, it could get worse than that. This is what he's talking about. You've sown much and bring in little. You stop worshiping, this is what happens. You stop caring about the house of God that God cares about because he wants a place of worship and you stop caring and this is what's going to happen. So anyway, that was the third temple, the rebuilt temple. By the way, that was the same temple <clears throat> that was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, back around 200 AD or BC, 200 BC, uh, when he desecrated the temple, you know, uh, uh, sacrificing uh, pigs on the altar, and uh, and of course that awakened the uh, the Maccabees uh, and Judas Maccabeus to <clears throat> lead a revolt against them, and of course that's when the festival of Hanukkah comes about and the burning of the candle for eight days in the temple with only one day of oil. That was a miracle of God. Another time we'll talk about that. <clears throat> and then there's the fourth temple. The fourth temple was Herod's temple. The temple usually referred to as the second temple, but it's really the fourth. Built by Herod the Great, beginning around 20 or 19 BC. This was the temple in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it obviously it was a magnificent, magnificent building, much bigger than the Temple of Solomon in some, in some cases. Uh, more elaborate, uh, more ornate, a lot more gold was inset into it. Herod considered himself a great builder, and I guess people would tell him that, because if you didn't, you'd probably cut your head off. But anyway, you know, he just, you know, wanted to hear he was just a great, great builder. He was the one who built Masada, uh, you know, and, and his great palace out there in the desert and whatnot. But this temple uh, was the one that uh, Jesus saw in his earthly ministry. And it would also be the one that would be destroyed in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted. He predicted it in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, when he says that Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him to for, for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And we know that that particular temple, as well as the city of Jerusalem, was completely laid waste. But the temple, there was not one stone left upon another. And since then, no temple has been built and no temple has been rebuilt. But the scriptures are clear that there will be a fifth temple. There will be a fifth temple. The temple that the Jews are hoping to build soon for the coming of their Messiah. But you see, they want to build a temple. Uh, we don't have enough time to talk about the Temple Institute, but uh, for those of you that have been to Israel and have been to the Temple Institute, you've actually been 
there for the presentation from the, what's, what's called the Temple Mount Faithful. And these are the ones that are, are, are busily preparing for the building. As soon as they have the go-ahead, they're going to build a temple. This is the temple I'm talking about that we're going to find out may be or may not be on the Temple Mount for various reasons. And again, we're going to kind of reserve that for a little later. But um, if the fifth temple is anything, it is the tribulation temple. It is the tribulation temple. The temple that is at the center of everything happening during the seven years of tribulation that the Jews will have to go through the last seven years of judgment for, for Israel. And there's a major dilemma in considering this temple as a holy place. Because in, in effect, it's not the temple of Messiah. But uh, as I said, uh, groups like the Temple Institute have already undertaken and made most of what will be used in the temple, all the furnishings, utensils, garments. They actually uh, constructed a menorah for the temple already. It's made of pure gold. And uh, it, it uh, had a pretty high price tag to it. Uh, it sits uh, on the, uh, right outside of these steps that are facing the Temple Mount. Uh, coming from the Temple Institute. And as you're going toward the Temple Mount, there is, it's, it's encased in a bulletproof uh, uh, casing, and of course there's guards around it all the time. But uh, they have it there waiting to, you know, for the temple to be built. But I want you to first consider what we read in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the chapter that is uh, presenting to us the... Uh, uh, the two witnesses that are going to prophesy 1,260 days. Uh, and, you know, we're not, we don't have time for talking about the two witnesses. But it's the first two verses of this chapter that are of importance. John is speaking. He says, there was given me a reed like unto a rod. Just like the reed that we talked about that uh, uh, Ezekiel saw measuring, measuring the, the temple uh, in his vision. And the angel stood saying, and by the way, remember that this is, we're tying Ezekiel to the Gospel of John as well. They're very close in, in, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now notice what he told him to, to measure. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But notice the verse 2, but the court which is without, the word without in the King James means outside. You know, within and without. You can be within, which is inside, or without, which is outside. So without, uh, here is, is uh, the court which is without or outside the temple. The outer court, in other words, leave it out. Don't measure it. Measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot 40 and two months. That's going to be the, uh, the second half of the, of the tribulation period. The Gentiles today are on the Temple Mount. As we mentioned, the, Arab have, the Arabs have the control of the Temple Mount because of the, of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the Dome of the Rock. So, this is one of the things that the scriptures are pointing to that we need to be aware of. 
The temple is one that is uh, crucial to uh, the end time prophecies of Israel being completely finished with their 490 years of judgment. These are the last seven years which have been split up and separated from the other 483. And what we know from the book of Daniel is that there will be a political covenant. There is going to be a political covenant made in the future that will allow a place of, uh, for Jewish worship on or near the Temple Mount to be shared. And of course, we know with whom. I just talked about it. But that covenant is in Daniel 9.27, and I want you to follow along with me. We're going to close with this here because of time. I'll, I'll just come back where we were, we were going to actually try to finish a little bit of, of Ezekiel uh, 40. But um, we needed, I wanted to show that video, then I also wanted to make sure that we understand the purposes of the temple and the reason why the temple is so important to God. But anyway, he says, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That is, speaking, if, if you will, of the, uh, the Antichrist. This is, this is pointing to the Antichrist. And in the midst of the week, which means at the very middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. That is called the abomination of desolation. He causes the sacrifices to cease. What was the reason for them to build a temple again? Or what is the reason for them to build a temple again? Because they want to get back to their sacrifices, which they haven't done for thousands of years. <clears throat> but the Antichrist is going to cause the sacrifice, the oblation, the offering to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So that is the political covenant, but it's going to lead to a very personal conceit. And that is the arrogance of a coming world leader that will cause him to enter into the temple and demand to be worshiped. That is the Antichrist again. And if you go to Daniel chapter 11, if you're still in Daniel, just go over to chapter 11, and look at verses 36 through 38. And again, what we're doing is connecting dots from Daniel to Revelation. And eventually as well to First, uh, Second Thessalonians. But notice in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to 38. This is speaking again of the Antichrist. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself. Notice, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Now, who would do that but somebody that is led by the devil himself who did the very same thing in heaven? We call him Lucifer in, in Isaiah chapter 14, who wanted to exalt himself above God. And so he says, the king shall do according to his will, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now I'm not gonna go into the detail here. We did a few months ago or actually about a year ago when we were talking about, uh, we studied the book of Daniel. Nor the desire of women, which does not make him a homosexual, but it uh, kind of reveals a little bit about his religion, by the way. Nor regard any God for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. Well, we know that uh, our God is a God of, uh, of love and of life. 
and uh, the god of Islam is a god of war and of hatred and, and all. And so just connect those dots. And a god whom his fathers know or knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, when, they, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation, which that is, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whosoever readeth, let him understand. So Jesus talks about this. Hasn't happened yet. Forerunners have been there. Antiochus Epiphanes was a forerunner to that. But that, uh, and some, some would have said Titus was in, in, Roman, uh, in the Roman uh, uh, leader that, uh, in 70 AD, but that, that didn't happen. So that's why you cannot connect, you know, the, the scriptures to saying that, it, you know, prophecy's already been fulfilled. No, it hasn't. It's yet to happen. But it brings us to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Again, the Antichrist, who, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So there will be a, sick, a fifth temple that will be built. And then there is the sixth temple, and the sixth temple is the messianic temple, and this is where we're going to leave off. But let me just say that uh, the temple that, I, that Ezekiel saw in his vision, and the temple that we will continue to study, is the temple that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will build himself. And what we're going to talk about next time, and, and starting from here on, we're going to do our best to finish through the, the next three chapters as quickly as possible, because... That video was supposed to help a little bit, giving us a little bit of an idea. But uh, what we're going to deal with more than anything is uh, the fact that um, Jesus is going to change everything when he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. And we talked a little bit about that. Zechariah 14 talks a little bit about that. But uh, we're going to talk a, little, a lot more about it because there are many other scriptures. So when we get back into verse 17 of, of Ezekiel next time, we're going to deal with that particular issue of, uh, of uh, the change of topography. It's really important for our understanding of the kind of temple that we just saw. Uh, if we were to... If we were only to uh, place it upon the uh, Temple Mount of today, it wouldn't fit. <laughs> so the topography definitely has to change. And Jesus is going to do that. And it's going to be like in the twinkling of an eye. Everything is going to change when Jesus comes. And we're going to see those scriptures. So those are exciting scriptures to look forward to. So I just want to say that. And uh, let's see, I've got a few more pages to go. Uh, about 12 tonight. I think we might be finished if I can't keep going, but we're not going to. We're going to stop right here. The important thing is that uh, uh, this is a literal temple because we have just talked about four temples that were very literal, a fifth that will be literal because it is necessary for Israel to finish their judgments of seven years. And a seventh 
or I should say a sixth temple that is prophesied by Ezekiel with every sign given as literal. It is a literal temple coming. It will be built by Jesus in his way when he comes. Is there a seventh temple? There is already. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you need to purify that temple every day and worship every day in your heart unto the Lord. The church, in fact. What's interesting is when we get to heaven, it's, it's going to be interesting because Scripture is very clear in the book of Revelation. When we get there, there's not going to be a physical temple in heaven because he's our temple. But today, we're, we're, we're the temple. The Bible says very clearly, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and uses that word very clearly. So be the temple of God. Amen?